I've learned, uh, this is a weird thing, that we apparently have traditions at our house that I didn't really even know about. It's like uh, things that we do every year, but I didn't know that they had risen to tradition status. So I've been learning these things. One of them is we watch a movie every Christmas Eve. So going forward, she's rolling her eyes. She's like, you know we do this every year. I didn't realize it was that big of a deal until I tried to end the tradition, and then that didn't go well. (laughs) And then another tradition I found out that we have is every year when we drive back from Gorman after we've done Christmas at Granny and Papa's house, we stop at the Breckenridge McDonald's. I did not know that had risen to tradition status either, but apparently that's what we do every single year. Because it's really good, and uh, I like McDonald's, and it's one of the few places we can afford to eat. Uh, have y'all noticed that, that everywhere you go now, like you, sh- you go to Chick-fil-A, and they're like, that'll be $400, and you're like, wait a minute. We, 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 didn't, we didn't order very much, and then you try, try to take Sawyer to Chick-fil-A. If you ever take a teenage boy to Chick-fil-A, they never get full. So you're just like, you know... Buying more and more. So it's like the first shot, they're like, that'll be $65. And then the teenage boys go back for another 20 So you just, but McDonald's still has the value menu. You can still get a good deal there. But we were at our annual McDonald's meal for Christmas. And we were there in Breckenridge. And we sat down at the restaurant. And, and I was sitting down at the end of the table. And the, kind of the focus was on the baby and Melissa. And they were sitting at the other end of the table. And, and so I was... Nobody was sitting across from me, and so on the other side of the room, there was a little group of older people sitting uh, there, and they were, I could hear them talking, they were chatting, and they were speaking very loudly because one of them had forgotten their hearing aid, and he kept saying that. Everything had to be repeated. He forgot his hearing aid. It was a real source of, of annoyance for me and them. Uh, they <laughs> but they were, uh, I don't know what that was, my phone. They were telling stories. They were, uh, you know, talking about the local gossip and people that had been arrested and things like that. They were complaining about their city. Uh, there was plenty of profanity mixed in. And it was depressing for me to see people, because you want to honor and respect your elders, don't you? And to hear them using that kind of language and to see the kinds of things that, at the end of your life, this is what you're talking about, you know. And it was It was sad. And so then we came home, and the next day I was going to need to prepare for Dora May Crosswaite's funeral. So I came home to make the order of service and began to prepare my message. And I listened to a recording that I had made of Dora May Crosswaite, who was 97 years old. About four years ago, we had a luncheon. And Carolyn Strader had planned a luncheon for, for Dora May because Dora May was leaving to go live in Lost, uh, uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, with her daughter. And so if y'all remember, Verma was there and you were there. We got together at the fellowship hall and we ate and we had a lovely meal. And then we sat down and I turned the tape recorder on and Dora May Crosswaite told us her life story. And so I was listening to that uh, story and thinking about the contrast between the conversation we had as we all sat there with Dora May and talked about her life and the conversation I had just heard at McDonald's. I will tell you that most of Dora May Crosswaite's stories were about her love for the churches that she served. Her stories were about her husband and her, her husband's and hers commitment to the Lord. 
the way she loved her friends and her family, the way she loved you as First Baptist Church, her community. It was a gentle conversation. It was a mature conversation. Very different from those hardened senior adults who sounded more like immature teenagers talking. So there was a lesson. As we approached the new year, I think there was a lesson for me in listening to those different stories. Because what I had done that night was basically just listen to stories. And here's the question. What kind of stories will we tell? Anna came up and she told some stories, didn't she? She told stories about the Lord's victories in our church and the way that the Spirit is moving amongst us as we are being discipled and making disciples. What kind of stories do you want to tell? What kind of stories do you want told about you? If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15. There's an interesting little paragraph in this sermon that I think will benefit, uh, not the sermon of Hebrews, not my sermon, <laughs> uh, that I think if we look at this paragraph in the book of Hebrews, it will benefit us this morning and also this year. So let's talk about Hebrews as a book for just a minute to give us some context. So the book of Hebrews is most likely a sermon that was preached and someone wrote down the sermon. It's a message to Jewish, Jewish Christians, that's why it's called Hebrews, who had, had come to Christ, but they were facing a crisis of persecution and they were tempted to leave their faith in Christ and go back to the Jewish religion, to go back to the temple. They'd been shunned by their people, they were feeling ostracized, and the temptation was to say, let's forget this and go back to what's comfortable and what's familiar. Let's leave Christ. And Paul basically says, this is his argument in the letter, if you leave Christ, there is nowhere else to go. If you leave Christ, there's not another Messiah coming to die for you. The one who came was the one. He was better than Moses, better than the angels, uh, better than Melchizedek. In the, he was in the, the priestly order. And he, and he says, he's the one who's come. He's the only one who's coming. If you leave him, there's nowhere to go. The writer spends this book or this sermon showing how God has kept his promises. And he draws connections between the faith of the saints in the Old Testament and the faith of Christians now. And shows that faith, whether it's in Genesis and it's Abraham believing, or whether it's in the book of Acts and it's the Apostle Paul believing, or it's you and me now putting our faith and trust, the only way anyone's ever been saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we, we see it much more clearly because we're looking back and it's all been revealed to us. It wasn't as clear to those who were living the story forward. We're looking back. And so we have the benefit of the full revelation, don't we? They just saw through a glass darkly, but if they believed what they'd been shown, it was credited to them as righteousness. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ is accounted to you just as it was to Abraham. We can read in Romans 4 where that connection truly is made also. But the writer of Hebrews is drawing those connections. The one that was to come, that they trusted in, was Jesus. And they looked forward to his coming. And they believed and they were made righteous and they were saved. Now we look back and we are believing and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and being credited as righteous so that we can stand before God righteous 
when we die and whenever we come to the judgment. The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, who this preacher was. It could have been Paul. It could have been Luke. It could have been Apollos. It could have been someone else associated closely with the apostles. But the churches all had this sermon, and it was very important to them, and that's why we understand it to be inspired scripture. It was duplicated throughout all the churches of of Jesus. And the writer is laying all this out for them, but as he's making this argument about Melchizedek, which is a really awesome Bible name, and no one names their kids that anymore, but as, as as he's talking about Melchizedek, who appears in Genesis chapter 14, who's mentioned in Psalm chapter 110, he stops. I mean, he's talking about all this lofty stuff. He's talking about how Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then he stops. In chapter 5, verse 11, he just stops his thought altogether. Look what he says in chapter 5, verse 11. He's talking about Melchizedek, and he says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Look at verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This passage is a warning. This short paragraph that's a thought that's just sort of stuck in the middle of other thoughts, it's a warning to the spiritually immature. It's a warning to us to grow up. And as we stand here on the precipice of a new year, and we look out and we see what will we face this year? What is coming our way this year? So much that we can anticipate, but so much that we don't know. But the one thing that we can know is that we don't want to live 2024 as spiritually immature, as those on the milk who can't handle the meat. We don't want the preacher to stop his sermon and say, I'm trying to teach you the word of God, and I have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain, and you can't even listen anymore. Because you've become dull of hearing. So as we move into 2024, let us be warned and let us resolve to grow as disciples of Christ. To grow up. So here's the sermon outline, the three points of the sermon. Number one, in verse 11, we see spiritual maturity is not achieved by passivity. Spiritual maturity is not achieved by uh, being passive. Verses 12 and 13, an immature Christian is a spiritual tragedy. An immature Christian is a spiritual tragedy. And then in verse 14, spiritual maturity is the constant application of God's word to all of life. Those will be our three main points. Let's look at verse 11. Spiritual maturity is not achieved passively. Uh, The preacher here realizes, not that he's over his own head, but that he's over the heads of his listeners. And he says, y'all lack the maturity to understand me. There's much to say. It's hard to explain. And you have become dull of hearing. They didn't start off that way. But they developed into sluggish and lazy listeners. 
This is a bad combination. There's a lot of content. It's difficult content. And the people have learned that they don't want to learn. I can remember the first day of orientation at law school. And they took all of us that that were first-year law students, and they brought us to the auditorium at the Texas Tech Business School. And there were over 200 of us in that class. And they brought us into a room, and they said, your legal career begins today. And they handed us an old English case, a, a court opinion, for us to read. And they said, we will discuss this after lunch, when you all come back from lunch. So we all took off from lunch, uh, for lunch, and all of us had the case in our hand, and we had pens, and we had highlighters, and it was dense, and it was difficult, it was old language, but we were so eager to do law school that everybody was highlighting, and everyone was underlining, and everyone was discussing, and everyone was excited. But that was the first day of law school. How do you think as the semester rolled on, and as the next year rolled on, It wasn't exciting anymore, was it? It it, it didn't have that same uh, draw, and we weren't all pumped up to be law students anymore. It became work. It became a grind. And so that kind of that initial excitement wore off, and then it became something that we had to do. And we still wanted to do it, but we had to make ourselves do it. Why? Because we wanted to graduate from law school. We wanted to pass the bar exam. We wanted to be lawyers. Now, some people go to law school and they realize, well, this is just not something that I'm interested in. Maybe their life circumstances change. Maybe they realize they're called to something else. There's a lot of reasons why people uh, drop out or, or stop going to law school. But imagine if I was telling the story of my life and I was meeting with Tracy and Jake and uh, Jan and, and Bill and Don and all the, uh, the other members, Chuck, whoever else was on the search committee. Imagine if we were talking and y'all were thinking about hiring me as your pastor. And I, I met with the search committee and I said, well, I went to law school and I read the first few cases. And, uh, you know, I, I, I liked being a law student, but I, I just got to where I just couldn't read those books anymore. They kept wanting me to come to class. And the chairs were hard, and, and uh, it was always cold in the lecture room, and the professors were total nerds. They were always trying to get me to learn Latin words, you know, like stare decisis and stuff like that. And I, I kept, they were like giving us all this old stuff to read, and I got to where I didn't even want to take those old books to class anymore or take my laptop. It was so boring. Imagine if that's how I described being a law student. That's nuts, isn't it? But how many of us is that the story of our Christian walk? People start off excited. They start off with zeal. And then instead of just saying, okay, the newness is worn off, and now I understand that taking up my cross and following Jesus every day is going to be hard work. But how many just say, it's too hard, I don't even want to try. It's too, I don't even want to mess with it. You know, I know y'all want me to come to church. I know you want me to read my Bible. I know you want me to pray. But I just, it's too boring, I don't want to do it. That's how a lot of people's Christian life is. Now, if we applied that kind of thinking to law school or any other endeavor, we would say, hey, some things are hard. And if it's not hard, is it really worth doing? The Christian life is hard, but many of you want to approach it with the most lazy attitude that you could possibly have. You don't work at all at growing as a Christian. And how can you ever grow as a Christian if you've decided I'm not going to do it? Well, that's what... The preacher is saying here in Hebrews chapter 5. 
You've become dull. You didn't start off dull. You became, you know, in, in, in the history of preaching in America and in Britain, there's a book written that says, back before tape recorders, whenever a revival would break out, you know what else got popular? Shorthand. Because people wanted to write down every word of the sermon because God's word was being preached and they were going to pay attention. They were going to try to remember what God was saying to him. But do we come to church and ever think the Holy Spirit of God might speak to me today? Or are we just trying to get through the sermon so we can make it to Stewart's? Make it to the Dairy Queen? It's a convicting, isn't it? That verse, that verse 11 is convicting. I got a lot to say. It's really hard stuff and you can't handle it. You can't handle it because you've let yourself, you've become dull. You didn't start off that way, but now you've learned that you don't even want to bother learning Christ. Wow. If that doesn't convict you, that convicts me terribly. And it pushes me into 2024 saying, let's focus in on what the most important thing is. Jody and I were talking yesterday, and Jody said, we, we had talked to Braxton, and, uh, you know, uh, we were just discussing things afterward, and Jody said something that really was convicting to me. He said, you know, why don't I focus more on the one thing that really matters? I think that was kind of the sentiment of it. Like my relationship with God, I know what I do for Christ is the thing that's going to last, and the only thing that really matters. How little time do we devote to that? And that really, as I sat down to write this sermon, that was ringing in my ears as Jody had said that. And I thought, that is such a great, that's such a great point. You don't grow up, uh, you don't become a grown-up passively, you know. You have to learn things. You watch what other people do. Spiritual growth doesn't happen just because you want it. It doesn't just happen. Uh, when the new wears off, you've got to put in the work to learn. You've got to put in the work to grow. You've got to put in the work to make good decisions and learn the difference between right and wrong and what God is pleased by and what grieves him. It's the same in your, your work. It's the same in your school. It's the same in the Christian life. Look at verse 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Kent Hughes says that this verse points to the greatest scandal of today's church. That the people in the church are called to grow as disciples, to take up their cross and follow Jesus, but they fail to thrive. They fail to grow up and mature. That the church is full of baby Christians who ought to be teachers, but they're still drinking milk. Wouldn't that be something if we'd gone over last week for our Christmas meal or two weeks ago for our Christmas meal and we had the people that could eat ham and then the people that we had to give bottles to? That would be really embarrassing, right? If you're in your 50s and you had to get a bottle because you couldn't handle the ham? But, how, but if we apply that spiritually, how many of you should be mature drink, uh, eating the meat but you're still drinking the milk because you've never bothered to grow up in Christ? You just thought it would happen. It doesn't just happen. You have to learn. You have to work at it. The greatest scandal in the church, Hughes says, is that you have a church full of Christians that don't have Christian minds. People that should be teaching others, but they don't even know the basics. They've forgotten the basics. People who should be growing the church often wind up being a drag on it because they aren't spiritually minded or spiritually inclined. 
Their spirituality is small when they approach the things of God. They approach it with small faith, small spirituality. But their worldliness, their doubt, their recklessness, their pride, their legalism, their impatience, their dullness, their cynicism, and their selfishness, and their insubordination to God, that's big. I met with Braxton yesterday. And when these kids come in, and I, and I start asking them the questions... I see the look of dread on their parents' face. I hope he doesn't ask me those questions. I grill these kids. And uh, I want them to know what they know, and I want them to know, I want to know what they're thinking and what they believe before we baptize them. So I went home. Melissa said, well, how did the meeting with Braxton go? I said, ah, oh, Braxton knows his stuff. Braxton knows his stuff better than a lot of the adults. And that's true. Not because I haven't been teaching you all this stuff from this desk right here for 10 years, but because people stop listening. Eventually, people stop listening and they forget the very basics that they know in the first place. If someone came to them and said, I'm worried that if I die, I'm going to go to hell, what do I need to do? Oh, we need to go talk to a preacher. No, you need to be able to give them the, the hope, the reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness, respect, you need to be able to share the gospel. But have you forgotten the basics? Would you be uncomfortable trying to share the gospel? Somehow you knew the gospel enough to get saved and now you don't know it enough to share it? That doesn't make any sense. Have you ever seen an adult participate in a Bible drill with fifth graders? No, because they would get killed. It would take too much work to learn all those verses, to learn where all those Bible books are. The writer describes this condition. It's spiritual immaturity. How does he say it? He says, you need milk, not solid food. Which brings us to the second point, which is an immature Christian is a spiritual tragedy. Can we come to look at the fact that a person is not growing in Christ as a tragedy? For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This image is really something. Can you imagine nursing adults? That would be a tragic idea, an adult who can't eat solid food. How many of you want that for your children? How many of you would have a child, child's growing up, and you say, I really hope this child never gets teeth and never gets to have solid food because I just want them to remain a big baby for the rest of their life. Now, it's painful to watch them grow up. I realize that. When one goes off to college and the other one, you know, gets hair on their legs and all this stuff, and you're saying, oh, my gosh, my babies." They're all growing up. You get $5 for that. Uh, <laughs> he's like, now that I have hair on my legs, I get 10, right? But, uh, but it's like, I'm sorry, Sawyer. <laughs> but these kids, they grow up, and it's kind of sad. But what would be the tragedy if they didn't grow up? What would be the tragedy if they never matured? If they didn't learn to be wise, if they didn't learn how to make decisions, that would be a tragedy. We're sad because we're sentimental. But we would be heartbroken if our children did not thrive and did not grow up. It's a tragedy when a Christian never becomes a mature Christian and they remain a baby. I've never met a child who didn't want to grow up. I've never met a little one who wasn't proud when they were two or three years old to say, I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I was playing with the baby on Christmas with some little puzzles that she got. And your little puzzles, the Melissa and Doug puzzle, 
You take the little shape and you, you pull it out of there and it's a rabbit and you can see where the rabbit goes and you put it on there. It's like literally the easiest puzzle ever. And even though this baby uh, is definitely more advanced than all the other two-year-olds, she's still very unskilled. <laughs> okay. Uh, she's obviously a genius. I mean, I do want to say that. But she's unskilled. She was having a difficult time kind of understanding the concept of the puzzle. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, it's not that hard. And I show her how to put it together. And I, do a good, I did a really good job really quickly. <laughs> Y'all be amazed at my puzzle working skills. And then, then after I'd worked that puzzle and got it back to perfect, you know what she did? She turned it over and giggled. And I thought, you don't understand. You're unskilled in puzzling. Why did you want to ruin this? It's very frustrating. And this preacher says that the immature Christian is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, what does that mean in the context? Probably in the context he's saying, you don't understand the difference between right and wrong. You don't make good decisions. But there's something more foundational there. Because when we think about the do's and don'ts, mature people think about the why behind the do's and the don'ts. See, legalists and children, you just say, do this, don't do this. Immature people, do this, don't do this. But for mature people, you think about, well, why is this wrong? Why is this right? Why why do I need to obey what God has told me in the Bible? Well, the reason you need to obey what God has told you in the Bible is because he loves you, and when he gives you commands, he's doing that for your own good. He's not giving you those commands to make your life miserable. He's giving you the commands because he knows what causes thriving. He knows what hurts people and hurts other people. So the one who's moved from the milk to the meat, yes, they know right from wrong, but they're skilled because they know the the reason behind the right and the wrong. And they want to do right because they want it to be an act of worship to a holy God who's righteous. So let's do this for 2024. Because we're all there, aren't we? If I said, raise your hand if you're spiritually mature and you're happy where you are. If you raised your hand, I would say, then you're really a baby. <laughs> because we want to keep growing. We want to, we're all there. Nobody has arrived until we step into eternity. So let's resolve. Let's say, let's, you know, uh, let's do a refusal. I refuse to stay an unskilled child. Rather, I'm going to grow up and mature in Christ. And how, how do we do that? Look at verse 14. Spiritual maturity is the constant application of God's word to all of life. Solid food is for the mature, verse 14. For those who have their powers of discernment trained. Is training easy? No. Training is hard. But but they have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Do people like to practice? No. Practice is hard, right? So our powers of discernment are trained by practice to distinguish Good from evil. Notice what the preacher says about the mature Christian. They can handle the solid food. In other words, they're maturing. If there's a lot of content, if the content is difficult, they're going to apply their mind to it to understand it because they want to understand it. How does maturity go from a desire to a reality? Okay, I can hang around a bunch of unspiritual people. Maybe you hang around a bunch of unspiritual people where you work. Maybe your family, I don't know, your friends. Maybe they are not spiritually inclined. 
And when you are with them, you don't become a better Christian, you become a worse Christian. But have you ever done the reverse of that? So we have our preacher's conference coming up at the end of January in Graham. And this year, David Helm, one of the most famous preachers in North America, is going to be in Graham leading this pastor's conference for the pastors. And I get there, and when I show up to the, to the pastor's conference or to the pre-conference, and we're going through the texts that are going to be discussed, I feel like I'm with the sharpest and finest Christian brothers I know. And I'll tell you, when I'm around those guys, I'm challenged and I'm sharpened. Because the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. When believers that truly love the Lord, when you get around the people that want to grow, if you hang around mediocre Christians, nobody's getting sharpened. You're getting dull. But when you get around believers who really love God's word, if I spend 30 minutes with Rodney Nance, I'm going to walk away a better Christian. Because Rodney is a walking Bible study. If you're ever around him, he's going he's to talk about what's on his heart. And that's probably going to be what he read at 4 o'clock that morning. I don't know why he gets up at that ungodly hour, but he does it. And he will tell you unashamedly what God has told him that morning. And it sharpens me. It makes me better. Jody, yesterday, sharpened me. And it, and it had an effect on my spirit. It has an effect on my sermon. So it's going to have an effect on you. That's how things work, right? That's how the Christian life works. That's how we grow. You get around people that are growing in Christ, and you're going to grow in Christ. I think about when I was a, a, a young high schooler coming out of junior high, and we were go, going to church camp and um, uh, doing youth choir and, and different, I guess, different youth things. And I was a young, like a ninth grader, and I was, I was hanging around with the senior boys in the youth group. And I felt like I was out of my league, man. But I was watching these guys. And they were articulate, and they were funny, and they had great attitudes. They were helpful to the adults. They were setting an example of what it meant to follow Christ. These young men love the Lord, and they still do, and they're pastors in different places now. And we grew up in a fantastic church, and God was moving during that time. And those guys, when I was around them, I didn't want to act like a junior high student. I was more like a junior high student. But I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be like a senior. I wanted to grow up. I wanted to be mature. I wanted to be one of those guys. And that's how it works for us. These examples, um, learning, uh, learning and the commitment, they, they, when I'm around people, seeing the example, and I'm studying the Bible, and I'm committing myself to studying the Bible, it trains my powers of discernment so I can make good decisions. I can see what's right, but not just see what's right, but desire what's right. I can see how it's better. Spiritual life is this, choice after choice after choice. You think spiritual life is like, oh, make me holy, make me holy, make me holy. I'm going to sing this song with all my might and really feel it and be sincere. No, that's not how we grow as Christians. We grow as Christians this way. Choice, 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 choice. That's how we grow. You choose to love. You don't feel the love. You choose to love. You choose joy. You choose peace instead of making strife. You choose patience instead of impatience. You choose to be kind or unkind. You get the idea? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. They're choices. You are not saved by your works. 
You're not saved by your goodness. You're not saved by your good choices. The Bible's clear. You're saved by God's grace alone through faith. In a sense, the only thing you do to be saved is realize there's nothing you can do. You just have to trust someone else to save you. But once you are saved, God's work in you is powerful. See, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of you to dwell. Now, if that doesn't have an effect, what kind of God is that? But if you're truly indwelled by the Holy Spirit, it makes a difference. It makes a change. And it's powerful. And if it's not powerful, then the gospel is not powerful. But the gospel teaches us that it produces results. It gives you different desires. And we are trained by the constant practice of making these choices. And not all your choices are going to be right. But you're going to know what's right. And you're going to desire what's right. And when you do sin, you're going to repent of those sins. And you're going to choose to get back up, to take up that cross, and keep going. That's spiritual maturity. That's how we grow. Choices. Practice. Constant practice. Constant training. Choices. Choices. Distinguishing between what God loves and what he hates. What pleases him and what grieves him. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Apples of Gold. It's one of the most famous Puritan writings of all time. And he talks about old Christians. What do you want to be as an old Christian? How do you want the story of your life to be told? as one who has grown and matured in Christ? What stories do you want to be told about you? And what stories can you tell? Brooks says, an old disciple is rich in spiritual experiences. Oh, the experience he has of the ways of God, the workings of God, the work of God and the love of God. Oh, the divine stories that old Christians can tell of the power and the sweetness and the usefulness of the word of God as a light to lead the soul, as a staff to support it, as a spirit to quicken it, as an anchor to stay it, and as a cordial to comfort and strengthen it. Oh, the stories an old Christian can tell you concerning the love of Christ and the blood of Christ and the offices of Christ and the merits of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and the grace of Christ and the influence of Christ in that old Christian's life. Oh, the stories an old disciple can tell you of the indwelling spirit of the operations of the Spirit, of the witnessing of the Spirit, and of the comforts and the joys of the Spirit of God. All the stories we can tell if we'll grow up, if we'll decide to leave behind the things of childhood and to press on to be mature in Christ, to stop playing games, to stop wavering between two opinions, but to say, as for me and anyone I can influence in my house, We're going to serve the living God. New year. Fresh start. Resolve to tell those stories. 